We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicola Smith, a freelance journalist based here in Taiwan who writes for The Guardian and Time magazine. It's a pleasure to be here. And on the phone this evening, we have ICRT's Taijong correspondent, Donovan Smith. And no relation, but yes, yeah, great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing government employees losing their air conditioning for two hours a day, China's plans for a new Taiwan passport, a second most populous city, some ups and downs for Taiwan's economy, and a comic book-like mini driverless bus. But we're going to begin with storms, and Taiwan, of course, got hit by two this past weekend when Typhoon Nessat and Tropical Storm Haitung battered the island. There was flooding, people were injured, and farmers lost crops and livestock all really par for the course for one storm, let alone two in as many days. But of course, the long-running argument about who should call and when they should call typhoon holidays once again blew into town just as quickly as the winds arrived. Now, local city and county governments make the decision to close offices and schools, and they in turn end up the target of public scorn when they fail to make closure announcements in time, as was the case this Monday when Tainan Mayor William Lai faced a backlash for his late announcement of school and office closures. And when closures are called, and it's all bright and breezy and sunny skies outside because the storm has moved on faster than anticipated, the local governments end up facing the ire of business owners who are mad because they've lost a day's work for no reason. There have been calls for a more rigid typhoon holiday system which would see all decisions made by the central government, while there's also been calls for a more flexible system that would allow individual businesses to make their own decisions about typhoon holidays. So, Nicola, do you think it should be centralised or do you think local governments or even individual businesses should make calls about when we don't have to work when it's a typhoon day outside? Uh, well, I think there should be a lot more flexibility on it and just a lot more common sense. I mean, I I've, um, haven't really seen too many typhoons yet in Taiwan. I just came, I arrived here at the end of typhoon season last year. Um, I was pretty amazed this weekend um, to see that 500 EVA employees just didn't bother to turn up to work on Sunday when clearly the flying conditions conditions were absolutely fine, um, inconveniencing 10,000 passengers. So I really do think that um, if you have a rigid system, you're just going to have situations like that, which are completely unnecessary and just cause a lot of people a lot of grief. Um, I think so definitely not a centralised system because it seems that the conditions are completely different across the island. Surely it should be a combination of local government and businesses having the flexibility to um, override uh, a government uh, or a local government uh, ruling if it's very clear that there's absolutely no danger um, to employees or no reason not to come to work. I, I I just don't understand this kind of mentality where you automatically just take a free day off for no reason. Donovan, do you like free days off for no reason? <laughs> uh, no, I'm an employer. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, my answer to this is, is actually very, very similar to, to Nicola's here. The, the only thing that I, I think that could be added to that is that I completely agree that there needs to be uh, flexibility and a combination of local governments and businesses. 
Uh, there's a few things to be added, though, that I think that uh, that are important. There's certain uh, certain types of storms where there's where they're expecting a really heavy rains. There's certain areas in the mountains that need to be evacuated under again under certain conditions. Um, so that needs to be something that local governments, I think, need to be on top of. I don't think that's a very uh, central government uh, issue. Right, of course, saying that individual businesses could call typhoon days, I mean, it's obviously dangerous to go outside in a typhoon. So if obviously individual businesses were allowed to say, no, you have to come to work, we don't think it's going to be windy, and it transpires that it is rather windy, and an employee gets injured, then surely it brings up the, the question of liability. Yeah, it does. Um, and again, I think there needs to be some flexibility with this. I mean, obviously, if you're dealing with school children, with schools, I think that that definitely needs to fall under the, the local governments. Uh, as for the businesses, there's a big difference in what kind of business and where the businesses are. If you're in a downtown protected area, it's more likely to be safe. Um, and if the business is, you know, something that's more critical, like... Um, you know, bus drivers and, and uh, that sort of thing, then there may need to be some flexibility. Obviously, if it looks like it's going to be a really, really heavy storm, then the city governments should have the ability to shut it all down. Yeah, or maybe if you, you have some kind of um, sanction system so that if businesses deliberately put their employees in danger, then they're penalised for that. But you do have to have some kind of... Um, a system that's not too rigid um, and, and you know when did we stop using our common sense just kind of look out the window see if it's windy you know is it too rainy is it too windy don't go out um, I mean it just seems at the weekend it did seem a little bit certainly in Taipei I don't know what it was like in the rest of the country but in Taipei it seemed a little bit nanny state to kind of you know say everybody needs to stay inside not go to work um, when clearly it was absolutely fine outside there's, there are cases when, when a typhoon will hit and it hits really hard and like uh, signs will, will rip off of walls and it, you know when it hits that hard and you know it's going to be hitting that hard, there's definitely a case I think to be made for you know stopping all businesses and, and all activity because you can see and you can look online and see a lot of videos where I mean people will be on the scooter and literally the wind will blow them off and you'll see the people bouncing down the streets and the scooter blowing down the street, you know, on its side. Um, you know, when it gets to, when you know that the strength of the storm is that intense, um, where it is literally dangerous to be out in the street because you get everything from signs blowing off, you get, uh, you know, potted plants bouncing down the street. Uh, you know, when, when it gets to that strength and you know that the typhoon's hitting that directly, then I think then, then you know, there is a... a I, I don't think it's being a nanny state when it gets to that degree. The hard part, and this is where it gets really tricky, is knowing when and if it's going to hit that hard. And sometimes the path of the typhoons will change. Um, in this, more often than not, it's you know the city city governments have often called a typhoon day. And when the typhoon isn't coming in that directly, and it's turned out to be nothing at all like the you know this last weekend or very little and there was no danger the 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 risk is that city governments will sort of jump the gun and be overly cautious that's that's the, that is a concern but 
there are times when typhoons hit so hard that it is genuinely dangerous to be out in the street. Sure, sure, I totally agree with that. Um, but isn't it also down to an individual to kind of use their common sense as well? Um, I mean, the government can say, the government can warn, yes, a big typhoon's coming. Uh, it could be very strong. It's dangerous to go out. I mean, I'm almost, I'm always astonished to see scooters kind of tipping over because um, I just think, well, why were you out in that storm in the first place on a scooter? Like, can't people kind of use their own their own brains as well and just maybe like check on the weather forecast and like you know go on social media check how strong how strong it's going to be rather than expect the government to tell them um you know because people who live here know the strength of typhoons they know what they can do they know they can knock a sign on their head so maybe just don't go out yeah, I, I mean, I think the concern is for a lot of people is is that they their their employer says, well, if you don't come in, you'll be fired. And, that, um, and a, sometimes a, employers are not not as cautious about it. I, but I agree with you. There needs to be a lot of a lot more common sense, I think, in 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 the application of this. But you're you know, like you said a, a little bit earlier, uh, you know, there if companies putting their employees at risk. There's, you know, the p- putting in a sanction system could be a way to do that. Mm. Right. Let's stay with typhoon-related news, and then let's move on to the collapse of a rather important transmission tower in Hualien County during the storms, and that's led the central government to looking at saving power. And the government has decided to shut down all the air conditioners in its offices for two hours a day in a bid to conserve electricity. Now, Taipei City Mayor took complete umbrage at that idea, though, describing it as an extraordinary order and one that incurs work should only be given in a state of emergency. Now, Kerr wasn't the only one not to agree with this, as postal workers, Donovan, of course, were up in arms. Yeah, they uh, they said that they would be more susceptible to heat-related illnesses if they're asked to work in an enclosed environment without cool air. Um, now, I think the, what, what Coenza did was he raised the temperature in the office from 26 to 28, I believe, through the whole day. If memory serves, that's what he did. Yeah, that's, that's cause 28 degrees is two degrees less cold than the actual standard because, of course, government offices and most buildings and department stores and cinemas all have to be set to a minimum of 26 degrees these days. No colder, apparently. So, Nicola, have you been turning your air conditioning down? Um... Yes, because my husband's away and he loves air conditioning and I hate air conditioning. So I quite often don't really use it. Um, I think there's also a difference between male and female body temperatures that I've kind of read up on an occasion where women prefer uh, generally the office to be warmer than men. So I think perhaps it's less of a problem for us. But I mean, calling calling a state of emergency for like two hours two hours a day where you don't have AC is a little bit pathetic really isn't it I mean it's uh, it's not going to cool down it's not going to heat up that much if you put it off for, for um, two hours I don't think you're about to start having heat related illnesses people maybe just need to to again get a grip um, I'm sounding a bit harsh this morning um, this evening but um, yeah it's um I don't think it's. Uh, I don't see why this is a major problem, work-related problem. To do, be honest, do, do you think it will save money? Do you think it will save energy, though? Uh, yeah, it must do. I mean, air conditioning uses up a lot of energy if if electricity bills are anything to go by. Um, so why not? I mean, it's it's good to see kind of the government leading the way on something like this. Also, you know, air conditioning is it's so harmful for the environment as well. I, um, so it's always positive to see um, kind of local authorities 
uh, kind of trying to lead by example. You know, I, I think they should actually be encouraged to do that, not kind of um, criticised so much for it. What about in Taichung? Has Lin Jialong decided to turn the city's government's buildings electricity down off? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I saw some headlines about it, and I didn't read the articles. Um, the, uh, but, I mean, I think more fundamentally the problem is is uh, there's a lot of problems with Thai power and the way that they generate their power. Uh, and obviously there's been a lot of, uh, you know, over the years, these pylons, the electricity pylons. I'm sure you remember back in the 90s when one went down, one single pylon went down, and basically all of central Taiwan lost power. Um, so they've got a really poorly designed system, and in the summer, of course, they you know they run it. They claim that it runs up right up to the limit, and there's very very little margin uh, left in the system. Now, of course, Thai power is notorious for uh, crying wolf, uh, and then miraculously, whenever there seems to be a, sh- a shortage or political winds change, all of a sudden the problem goes away. So it's you know it's it's. It's hard to know how much of a real problem that they've got and how much they're, you know, they're, they're drumming their own, uh, they're drumming up uh, support for themselves politically and, you know, trying to get more out of the system. Right, let's move on from the typhoon and turn our attention to cross-strait issues and a report that Beijing is looking to release a Taiwan Special Administrative Region passport to ROC nationals. Now, according to Hong Kong-based Supermedia, the idea was put forward by Chinese academics who suggested that President Xi Jinping set up a committee to discuss the plan and also ask what they called public figures from Taiwan to support the move. The government here in Taipei, needless to say, was less than warm to the idea with the Mainland Affairs Council describing it simply as being ludicrous and misleading. So, a Taiwan Special Administrative Region passport. Can you see people queuing up to get these? Unfortunately, uh, some people, yeah. Um, now, if I recall, it, they were talking about issuing it to people, uh, Taiwanese who reside in Hong Kong and Macau, actually. But I could see a situation where a lot of, you know, if this were offered in China, uh, I could see a case where a lot of uh, business people there, just simply out of convenience, would actually go for that. Um, you know, if it may, if it saved them having to travel back to Taiwan to get you know renew the passport there, although that may, may mean they couldn't go home, so they probably could still do it. But um, under certain circumstances, I could see that they could be cajoled or influenced or you know otherwise, or there could, if China really wanted to push it, they would, they could easily put in incentives. Uh, for Taiwanese, you know, the Taishang based in China to take up such a document. I, I don't see that there would be any or very, very few takers of anybody Taiwanese residing in Taiwan, though. I think that most people here will find the very concept offensive. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a bit of a trap, doesn't it, in a way? But, I mean, it just looks like China's playing the long game here um, by kind of offering lots of incentives. I mean, not um, one minute they're kind of putting pressure on Taiwan, they're kind of trying to ostracize them um, on the diplomatic front, and then the next minute they're they're kind of offering some kind of special passport, they're offering incentives for businesses to set up in China or for students to, to be able to study in universities. It's... Um, it's a very confusing policy, um, but it, it does look, I mean, I, I don't see why Taiwanese people would opt to take this up. I mean, the, there doesn't seem to be a problem um, traveling on a Taiwanese passport, but certainly I agree with Donovan that if you're, if you're um, 
it's perhaps an issue of convenience if you are working in China. Um, yeah, I, I just don't see that idea taking off here, though. Now, of course, the, the government did warn, of course, that people that, if this passport idea goes ahead, re- ROC nationals who get the passports could risk losing all their everything in Taiwan. Yeah, now that that is, uh, you know, that that hopefully will be a big deterrent. Um, I mean, China just recently put in their new ID card, their you know their ID card for the Taiwanese compatriots uh, to make it more compatible with Chinese ID cards. Uh, but of course, then there's a lot more privacy concerns and, and tracking ability that people are worried about with that that ID card. Um, so, but it's and also apparently now. Uh, UN agencies have put up um, uh, have put up uh, signs that uh, Taiwanese are not allowed in unless they are carrying China issued ID cards. Right. Anyway, we'll move away from the cross-strait issues and move back to Taiwan. Well, we're going to talk about Taichung because the city became the island's second most populous city on Wednesday. Now, Taichung Mayor Lin Jialong said that the latest figures released by the Ministry of the Interior and valid as of late July show the city now has a po- or then rather has a population of two million seven hundred seventy-eight thousand one hundred eighty-two. Now that figure was three hundred nine more than Kaohsiung. So, Donovan, you beat out. Poor Gaoshung for the honour. Now, what's it going to get you? <laughs> well, uh, I believe that uh, the idea is it's going to get more, uh, hopefully, more subsidies. It's, I think, what the city government's hoping for. Uh, the city government has also uh, declared uh, or just recently announced a plan, uh, in fact, just before this came out, but in anticipation of it, that the city government's now vying to try and get more uh, corporate headquarters. So I think it's a psychological boost, and it's a it, it makes Taichung seem more important in a way. I mean, most you know most countries, the second city gets certain perks over the third or fourth or fifth one, and of course the biggest usually gets the most. Now Taiwan's a little bit unusual in that technically the fourth largest city gets the most money and the most benefits, and of course Taipei City itself. Um, but uh, yeah, so if they, the, but the plan to get the corporate headquarters is is a big one, and they're really pushing hard on turning Taichung into a major transportation hub for central Taiwan. So that essentially, Zhanghua City, for example, is more and more starting to look like a suburb of Tai you know, of Taichung rather than a, a separate entity. It's not complete yet, but chunks of northern Zhanghua County and Zhanghua City now commute to work in Taichung, and they're really pushing that. Right. I mean, but obviously getting corporate headquarters, do you think this is at all possible? Do you see companies moving from Taipei to Taichung just because Taichung's number two now? Well, I mean, I think that that helps make the case. So if you say to a company that, you know, okay, you know, this is the second largest city, and they're throwing uh, four different types of subsidies, which can reach up to three... uh, 3.4 3.4 million annually for companies to move their headquarters to Taichung. And the companies that they're targeting specifically are companies that actually have their production already based in Taichung, but they set up their corporate headquarters in Taipei. And years ago, it made a lot more sense, but nowadays with the high-speed rail and Internet, it's, I think, more... It's more conceivable. Plus, the you know the if they're region if they do business regionally, the Taichung Airport now serves a lot of cities uh, throughout the region, from Vietnam to Korea to China. 
So I think that corporate headquarters, corporate you know, corporations could consider it in part because of the its central location, in part because of the uh, the local infrastructure, in part because they already have their production offices here, uh, in part because of subsidies. Uh, and then, of course, Taichung is also cheaper and more livable as a place, so their rent or their, the, the land or their buildings would be cheaper to buy, so they could save money straight across the board. I mean, there was talk, of course, of the government moving to Kaohsiung. Yeah, and that seems to have died down. Um, I think the idea was to move, uh, well, <laughs> there was briefly a little bit of talk about moving it entirely lock, stock, and barrel, but then the city concentrated far more on moving the legislative UN down here, uh, which, the, of course, the argument being that Taichung's in the center, and so it would be easier for people to get to from all around the country, um, you know, particularly, again, with the high-speed rail, excluding, of course, the East Coast. But... Uh, and so they, they, they went so far as they already had sites. Uh, Su Jiaqian, the, uh, the president of the legislative UN, or what would normally be called a legislative speaker, uh, he came out and sort of said some positive words about it. Tsai Ing-wen didn't really specify anything one way or the other, but, uh, you know, has, has sort of hinted at, uh, regional, uh, you know, sort of regional justice, whereas, you know, Taipei's tended to get all the money and all the attention and all the government agencies. Uh, and she didn't specifically address this, but there was hints that that might happen. So when, when the new administration came in, there was a lot of talk, and the city government here put in a lot of effort, uh, came up with pro- proposals, uh, locations for where it would go, and I haven't heard a thing for at least six months now. It just but, completely dropped off the radar. Yeah, so, I mean, do you think that Taichung becoming the second most popular city will reboot this conversation? Uh, I hope so. Um, and if it were up to Lin Jialong, the mayor here, uh, yeah, it would. Uh, but the question is, is whether or not they would get any traction with the national government. And I suspect he knows one way or the other whether they'd be willing to support it or not. If he starts to bring it up again as a, uh, and starts talking about it a lot, that may mean he's gotten some positive noises from the central government, or at least non-committal or not against it. Um, if it doesn't come up as an issue again, that probably means behind the scenes he's been told, drop it, don't bother. Right, of course, we mustn't forget Taoyuan City, of course, because Taoyuan City could usurp both Kaohsiung and Taichung and even New Taipei. I find that highly unlikely. You don't think so? You think New Taipei will remain number one and Taichung will remain number two? Well, there's a 600,000 uh, 600, people gap between Taoyuan and Taichung at this point. That's a pretty big gap. Taiwan's population is leveling out and will start shrinking, I believe, at some point. Work, workforce is already shrinking, and in something like 10 years or so, uh, the population of the country is going to start dropping. And then, of course, the gap between Taichung and New Taipei is 1.2 million, or about 1.8 million between Taoyuan and uh, New Taipei. So I don't see them overtaking either of those, or even Kaohsiung or Taipei City anytime soon. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin this part of the show with a look at some of the leading business and economy-oriented stories of the past couple of weeks here in Taiwan with economics analyst Michael Boyden. Good evening, Michael. Good evening. 
Let's begin with what has proven to be a headline-grabbing story both here in Taiwan and also in the United States, that being Honhai Chairman Terry Guo late last week announcing at the White House that his company plans to invest 10 billion US dollars in an LCD panel plant in the state of Wisconsin. And then earlier this week, US President Donald Trump hinted that Guo told him in confidence that the Taiwan company could invest 30 billion US dollars total in the United States. Now, Honhai, or Foxconn, as the company is also known, has not commented on Trump's $30 billion investment claim. But, Michael, how good for Taiwan is the confirmed $10 billion US dollar investment? Well, it's a significant sum, and uh, any investment of this kind that extends the reach and the influence of a major Taiwanese-based company is basically good news for the home economy. It generates uh, employment, it generates... Um, uh, corresponding sort of increases in production here. So, yeah, it's good news. Right, let's move on to some gritty numbers, both up and down numbers. And I see that renewed growth in Taiwan's manufactured exports on the back of a lift in global demand is good news. But there are a few sides on the domestic economy. So, what's happening? Well, what's happening is that we have um, uh, a recovery in, in global demand, uh, driven by uh, renewed growth or continued growth in some major, uh, key major economies around the world, for example, the EU, the USA, the ASEAN, Big Six, and, and even some of the BRICS have returned to growth, Russia and Brazil, for example. So um, we, global demand is trending upwards this year, and this is working to Taiwan's advantage. The external factors at work on the economy here are always much stronger than the internal ones. However, that said, some parts of the domestic economy are feeling the impact of continuing negativity in the cross-strait situation. One one would hardly call it a relationship. Right. And export growth has rebounded. Of course, that happened in June. Yes, that's right. Um, Exports rose uh, 13% in annual terms year-on-year in June to uh, some around $25 billion worth. And um, that's an 8% 8 uh, increase on the previous month. So the trend is is strongly up. And what happens uh, when global demand picks up is that uh, as fast as Taiwan feels the effect when global demand declines, the reverse is also true, that as, as global growth picks up, GDP and trade growth picks up, then Taiwan very quickly feels the advantage. Right, and manufacturing conditions also improved, and the industrial production index also accelerated in June. Good, good month for good numbers for Taiwan was June. That's right, uh, and uh, we we expect the um, this trend to continue in in July and August, and foreseeably for the rest of the year. Uh, we we had quite a good a strong start to the year in terms of GDP growth in <clears throat> um, Q1 and Q2. So we expect to see. Uh, the economy on track for about 2.3, 2.5% even perhaps uh, GDP growth year on year this year in the full year, barring disasters, of course. Uh, so what we've, what we've seen is, is that the, uh, a key indicator is the Purchasing Managers Index. And this has been uh, in positive territory for several months now. Uh, it's big, it does fluctuate from month to month, but anything above 50% is positive, indicates positive sentiment in the manufacturing sector. 
This does not mean that there's instant growth, uh, but it means basically because so much of the economy is directed towards exports that um, we, we're looking at further growth two or three months down the road. Right, and more numbers that went up. Well, inflation accelerated as well. Yes, uh, it did. And a little inflation is always good. It helps to rev up the economy and uh, gives um, gives retailers uh, a, a bit of a, a lift. And um, uh, it has a, a sort of feel-good effect throughout the economy. Historically, inflation has never been much of a problem here in Taiwan. It's, it's, it was, it's always pretty moderate. That was me chatting with Taipei-based economics analyst Michael Boyden. Now from business, we'll move on to the possible establishment of a new political party by the group leading the ongoing anti-pension reform protests. Now, National Civil Servant Association President Harry Lee has said that the party will be for pensioners and focus on issues important to the island's elderly and retired residents. And he told a press conference this week that his group has been forced to consider establishing its own political party because retirees can no longer trust the governing or the opposition parties. Now, do you think Mr Harry Lee is serious about this, or do you think he's trying to nudge the blue camp into giving his group more support? Well, I mean, I don't think the blue camp will be particularly worried at the minute, really. Um, it's always very difficult to start up new parties, isn't it? And and to kind of get your base and to get um, support and to to get the funds and and the votes. But you know that's one of the joys of democracy. Is it's anyone can start a party if they want. They can um, uh, they can fight for their cause uh, and it is their right to do so. And with with Taiwan's aging population, then maybe it is time to have a party that represents uh, older people a lot more. However, I I, I think that they, they maybe need to look a bit more um, at their strategy for this uh, because if, if they are going to start taking away um, votes from the KMT then uh, you know they could be looking at a, a much longer time at having the DPP in power so strategically is setting up a new party in their best interest and I think there's a big question hanging over that. Personally I think it's a joke. Um, it's, it's a a party for pensioners, by by its very definition, is a party with a very limited lifespan, um, and this is not the first time that a party like this is, has been has been proposed. Uh, there was a party uh, that tried to run in the last elections, uh, which had various different acronyms, but essentially it was a civil servants party, which is a very similar sort of a base. It was all geared toward teachers, firefighters, military, police. Um, and they got basically absolutely nowhere. As far as I know, they got virtually no votes and didn't get anybody elected anywhere that I'm aware of. Um, and to go even more narrowly outside of the civil servants, which is a much bigger base than, than pensioners, uh, because the, the civil servants was looking at both pensioners and active civil servants, civil service uh, personnel, to narrow it down to just the, the pensioners, I, I don't think this is even remotely credible. But do you think that this group could be using it to pressure and get more support from the PFP and the KMT for their cause? Yeah, in their own delusional minds, maybe. 
Right, and we shall leave that there in case we offend anybody. And let's move on to the final story of this week when residents of Taipei who were awake at one o'clock in the morning this week well, they've been greeted to the sight of a rather comic book looking like a mini driverless bus as the city government began testing runs of the Easy 10 battery-powered autonomous electric vehicle on one section of Shinny Road. Now, City Hall has said that the field test is aimed at collecting data about road conditions in order to help develop the technology further. And Taipei City Mayor Kerwin Jur has said that the study could help the capital form its future transportation policies. So, Donovan, carbon emission problems soon solved, or you reckon it's still a long way to go before we see driverless, eco-friendly public transport on the capital's roads? I think actually we're going to start seeing a lot more of that in the next few years. I mean, the technology is moving by leaps and bounds. I don't know how advanced this particular bus is. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously in, in the U.S. right now, they, they've got them, you know, operating out. In the, they've got autonomous vehicles going all over the streets. You're starting to see more of them in Europe. Um, and there are a lot of uh, safety uh, advantages uh, long term once the technology gets more mature. Um, yeah, obviously, human error is is the the cause of traffic accidents outside of, I suppose, slick roads and, and things like that. But um, it's it's cheaper to run. It's uh, safer, probably, in the long run by removing uh, human error, and it can be run 24 hours a day, and uh, it can circumvent the new labor law, which has been a big problem for uh, bus companies, uh, in particular, is one of the ones that got hit the hardest. Um, the other thing is it opens up a lot of possibilities, for example, vehicle streamlining and modular uh, personalized transportation. In other words, you can have one right after the other inches apart or even connected or very close to each other because they're communicating so you don't have to have that big gap so it can save a lot of space on the roads by by linking them up keeping them really close together and they can kind of move like a train and then individual pods or vehicles can branch off and move into different directions and the train can can reform so that kind of thing can can remove a lot of congestion uh, and make it a lot easier for people to get to to have a more personalized uh, public transportation uh, access. In other words, it can get them to either very close to their home or directly to home because the costs long term would be much lower, and so it would be, make a lot more sense. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot of this stuff uh, just coming in the next few years. Yeah, I, I just think this is an absolutely crazy, crazy, ludicrous idea. I'm totally against driverless buses anywhere. But I mean, have, can't they just use the money to train bus drivers to actually drive properly? Um, I mean, you do speak, Donovan, about taking human error out of it. But surely we can just like invest a lot more in training bus drivers not to pull out on people, not to go through red lights, not to drive like they own the roads. And, you know, that would, for a start, make people a lot happier and safer. Um, and I just don't see how a driverless bus can actually work um, on streets like, you know, in, in the capital where driving is so unpredictable. Even if you, even if the bus itself is safe, how is it going to cope with the kind of driving you see in Taipei's roads? I just don't see how this can actually work um, in terms of safety alone. Um, no matter how good the technology is, you're still on roads that are governed by 
um, human errors and like, uh, you know, the, the majority of vehicles on the ability of those drivers to actually drive safely. I don't see how driverless buses can 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 safely and securely negotiate their way around the, the driving in on Taipei's roads. Well, it's actually a proven technology now. Um, they've been running them in uh, now this admittedly obviously though the roads are, are a little bit easier to navigate there but they've been running them in uh, the United States now for years um, and I believe they've had something like one accident okay um, but the, okay but the roads in the United States are, are not easier, comparable yeah. with the roads in in Taiwan um, but, the driving is completely different <laughs> but that being said I, the thing is is it's it's not it's not an uh, the you know the ability to, the thing is that because this is an automated system this it, and it operates at such high speeds that the the difference in complexity because for you know for for something an automated vehicle to compute uh, the the number of var- variables that are on a street in Taipei, whereas with a human, the speed is the speed and ability to calculate and deal with a lot of things coming at you gets a lot more complicated very fast. Whereas with the computers, it's not as big of an issue. Um, so there's different parameters here, but they need to be learned, which is exactly why the test test runs need to be done. Now, starting off, for example, Taichung has, and, and Taipei does as well, has dedicated bus lanes, which, except when they're passing through intersections, don't really have much in the way of, of traffic on the But they are normally full of scooters. I'm sorry? They're normally full of scooters, Nicholas said. But, of course, one point, Donovan, is you once had very dedicated bus lanes in Taichung, where they, of course, had the, the special buses running that are no longer running. Well, actually, no. It's 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 it, what's happened is that what was called the BRT lane is now called an a, a, a bus ex, an express bus lane. The, and really, the only difference between before and now is that the 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 old BRT buses are still running, uh, so that is all still in place. The only difference is that now some of the regular city buses also use the same lane. Um, but they never did actually get the proper BRT running. Uh, the, the, if they'd gotten the real BRT running, which they, what it, what the problem the, or the failure of it was that they never got the command and control center, which is supposed to control and, and locate where every bus is along the road and then coordinate the traffic lights with those buses, and that never got completed. It didn't get completed in time. Um, and then, of course, uh, Lin Jialong pulled the plug on it when he when he became elected. But actually, what was called the BRT is actually still operating. There's just more buses on that on that uh, lane. That's all. Right. Anyway, driverless vehicles. There are problems though with driverless vehicles because apparently Taiwan doesn't have any regulations governing the actual driving of driverless vehicles on the roads. So lawmakers will no doubt have to debate this, and of course they'll probably need several extraordinary extra legislative sessions to actually come to any census consensus at all on that. That's my booking on that one anyway. But we could all be living in a world like Blade Runner soon anyway. So I guess it won't matter because we'll be flying our autonomous vehicles around. <laughs> They're actually starting now. <laughs> they, they, they launched uh, some flying drone uh, taxis. I think there's only one of them or some, one or two, not very many. Uh, but then I think well, I won't hold my breath for that to come here, and if it does, I'll be running to the nearest bunker when they take to the air <laughs> in Taiwan, I think. Anyway, that's where we'll leave the show this week for Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. 
Thank you very much. And on the phone by Donovan Smith. And thank you. Great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.